Before we dive into today's show, we want to know what you think of the podcast at DC and get your ideas for the topics we should be covering going forward. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a seasoned listener, go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC. There you'll find our listener survey. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents. And now for the episode. Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians, and I'm your host, Sam Quinney. On January 14, 2019, the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, also called the Evidence Act, was signed into law by the president. This new law emphasizes collaboration and coordination among federal agencies to advance data and evidence-building functions. It also mandates new federal evidence-building activities, open government data, and confidential information protection. The Evidence Act represents an important step forward for how federal agencies approach evidence-based policymaking, which is, of course, something we here at the Lab at DC work hard towards every day in the District of Columbia. To help us better understand this law and what D.C. could learn from the federal government's new approach to evidence building, we've invited to the show Dr. Diana Epstein, the evidence team lead at the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB. Diana and her colleagues are working hard to start implementing the Evidence Act and providing guidance to federal agencies. We're also joined by Jenny Reed, the director of the D.C. Office of Budget and Performance Management, to talk about what DC is doing to promote evidence-based policymaking and where we may want to learn from the Evidence Act or provide a positive example. Diana and Jenny, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thanks for having us. Yep, thanks. So Diana, why don't we start with you? So you work in the White House Office of Management and Budget. For folks that don't know, maybe aren't the Washington insider type, what does OMB do? Sure. So OMB is essentially in charge of overseeing all the federal agencies and setting cross-governmental policy in a variety of areas. So we look across the government to think about management priorities as well as the implementation of the president's budget. And you're the evidence team lead at OMB. Then what specifically does the evidence team do and how does it play a role in that process? The evidence team is a small team within the Office of Economic Policy at OMB, and we are support unit for the rest of OMB and for the federal agencies directly on all things that have to do with evidence building and evidence use. So we care about how evidence is generated in federal agencies, how evidence is being used to inform policies and programs, and then how we're learning from that evidence and improving. Great. And can you give an example of like one thing that illustrates that process for you all that you've worked on in the last couple of years or so? Sure. So we focus a lot on program evaluation because we've long seen that that's kind of been a gap for a lot of agencies. So we work with a number of federal agencies to build their capacity to become better at doing program evaluation. So whether that's helping them figure out the right kind of qualified people they need to staff an evaluation office or helping them even design studies that will answer key questions that will help the agency to achieve their missions more effectively. 
And Jenny, you work in a similarly named office, as do I, here in D.C. government. Could you tell our listeners how the work of OMB lines up and the work of the evidence team lines up with the D.C. Office of Budget and Performance Management, OBPM? (laughs) Happy to. So there are a lot of similarities with OMB. So the Office of Budget and Performance Management has three teams underneath it. The first is the lab at D.C., The first among equals. The first among equals. (laughs) So the lab at DC, who similarly, I think, to Dr. Epstein's team is really our evidence gurus, our team helping support the rest of district government on how we're going to bring good program evaluation and evidence building into our work. We also have our core performance team. This team focuses on our annual performance planning with agencies, on monitoring our performance data, and then also looking at our CAP stats, which are performance stats, where we bring in the mayor and city administrator and talk about hot topics that we use data and evidence and stakeholders to come to solutions. And then third is the budget team. And this is the team that's putting together the mayor's annual budget and capital improvements plan. So, Diana, the Evidence Act was signed into law earlier this year by the president. How did this come about? I think a lot of people would think that nothing ever gets passed in Congress, which I know is not true. But specifically, this big piece of legislation on evidence itself, how did it come to be? It's a very interesting story, and it is a bipartisan achievement. So it started with a bipartisan commission on evidence-based policymaking that was created by Paul Ryan and Patty Murray. And that resulted in a series of recommendations in September of 2017 to further federal evidence building efforts. Once the commission issued its recommendations, Ryan and Murray very quickly introduced a piece of legislation that would put into place about half of the recommendations. That passed the House very quickly, kind of sat in the Senate for a while, but eventually did pass the Senate at the end of last year. And like you said, the law was signed in January of this year. So it all started with this bipartisan commission made up of a range of experts in areas that included evaluation and statistics and privacy, and then resulted actually in a law being passed. So it's a great bipartisan achievement. And also, at least you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like from someone who's not in the federal government, there's an awful lot of commissions, but whether they lead to new laws or things that are going to affect people, it seems like it's a little bit more rare. That's right. And I think it's a testament to the fact that there's a wide coalition of people who believe that evidence-based policymaking is a good thing and that it really can be a mechanism for government to work better. And so what does the act itself do? How is it different in the way the federal government operates? What should people see about how their tax dollars are being spent, say, you know, three, five, ten years into the future? So there are three big things I think that the act does. The first is that it creates an infrastructure for improving federal evidence building activities. So the way that federal agencies generate and then use evidence to inform decision making. The second is by strengthening the way that federal agencies put data out in an open format. So making data more available for the public to use. And then the third is improving data access of privacy protected data for appropriate research and analysis purposes so that we can help merge data sets together and begin to answer some more sophisticated questions. Would you be able to give an example of that for the people that aren't either always using data or always trying to get federal data in the case of many researchers? 
So maybe give a hypothetical example because that might be simpler to explain. But let's say um, you're trying to understand the impacts of housing on health. So you might want to merge a data set from HUD, for example, that has data on federal housing with a data set from Health and Human Services that has health data for federal housing recipients, let's say. So you might be interested in understanding how an improved housing situation leads to better health outcomes, for example. But to answer that question, you might need data from both agencies to be merged together, of course, protecting people's privacy and confidentiality, but only by combining data sets in these innovative ways can you begin to answer these much more sophisticated questions. And Jenny, in in your experience, is that similar to D.C.? How does that play out at a local level? Yeah, so in D.C., I mean, we've certainly struggled with some of the same challenges. When you think about the three pillars that you mentioned, we don't have the Evidence Act necessarily, but we are trying to build the infrastructure here to be able to support that kind of work across government through the lab at D.C. The mayor, about a year and a half ago, recently signed a new open data policy. So Mayor Bowser put forward some framework for district government to both be more proactive about sharing their open data, but we also went through a rigorous process of classifying it. I think the third step that we're at where we're still struggling with is how to share that data across agencies. There are a lot of rules and regulations in place, some from the feds, that prohibit us from being able to easily share our data amongst each other. And so we are actively looking for ways that we can do that more seamlessly, but at the same time, and very importantly, as you mentioned, protecting people's privacy. And so why for the average listener, average taxpayer, is this sort of work important? Why is it actually going to help people? So in many ways, having an evidence base for what you're doing should be fundamental to how you make decisions, but it often isn't, right? So there are many things that impact decision-making. We happen to believe that evidence is one important piece of that, that if you understand why something is working or why it's not working, that's going to lead you to take actions that will eventually improve outcomes down the road. It's not as easy as an up or down vote, nor should it be, but by building an evidence base over time about policies and programs and regulations and what's working and what needs improvement, we begin to understand what we need to do better in the future. And it's through that learning that we hope we can sort of deliver on outcomes more effectively. Yeah, I totally agree and think that, you know, in government, we're all trying really hard to do the right thing. We are all working towards trying to achieve these really big goals, these really big improvements for our residents. And unless we have the evidence and data behind it, we really don't know if what we're doing is working. And so we really need to understand, are we actually delivering a service that's improving the lives of residents at the end of the day? Are we using taxpayer dollars efficiently and in the best way to meet the need? And without that evidence, we can't answer that question very well. I think it is important to also, as you said, Diana, that this isn't necessarily an up or down decision. There's so many other factors that go into it and trying to think about how do we make sure that this is informing things, but as you mentioned, is not the be all and end all. I imagine, though, for many agencies, both in federal government, district government, that this is a bit of a culture change for them. Um, how is OMB looking at that aspect of really making evidence a part of their work? 
So we think the culture change piece is extremely important. And the legislation, the Evidence Act, I think recognizes that as well. It does a couple of things that we think are going to help promote that culture change. So one, it requires the creation of three senior positions, a chief evaluation officer, a chief data officer, and a statistical official. And these are the new senior leaders that are put in charge of implementing the act. And there are various portions of the law that actually specify that these folks have to work together in order to get this business done. And this is a really different way of thinking about how we do work in government, which is often very siloed. So this is a different approach. It requires collaboration. It requires folks working together across the offices that might touch data, that might touch evidence building. It also has a big focus on being very thoughtful and intentional in planning. So learning agendas, for example, are a key part of the Evidence Act. And what this is, it's a sort of thoughtful and strategic approach to asking what are the priority questions that we think will help us achieve our mission better, and then figuring out the methods you need to answer those questions, learning from that, iterating, and then using that information to inform your decision-making and to improve. These are just a couple examples, but I think, you know, putting people in place and structures in place to do the work and then requiring a really thoughtful planning approach are two big ideas. And would you say a little bit more about what you mean by a learning agenda or maybe another example of how an agency might approach it? So a learning agenda can be done in a number of ways. And I think we very intentionally recognize that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. There's not a single template that's going to work for all federal agencies. But it really begins by asking those priority questions. You know, what are the key questions that we need answered that we've been wondering about? And how are our programs working? Are we serving people effectively? Is a program being implemented as designed? you know, is this regulation achieving its desired objective? And ideally, those should be drawn from a variety of perspectives. So stakeholder consultation is a big part of this. So asking your stakeholders, whether that's folks within the agency who administer programs, members of the public, members of state and local governments that you partner with, but asking, you know, what are those questions that you need answered to that will help you do your job better? What's interesting about the learning agenda is it's supposed to cover a multi-year period. The thought being it addresses sort of these longer-term questions as well as shorter-term questions that might be more operational in nature, where if you had the answer in a couple months, it could really help you, you know, in your operational capacity. But it should be iterative, and you should be learning over time, and I think this is a key piece of it. Diana, how do you take something like a learning agenda that is being used at different agencies and make sure it's actually being utilized for its intended purpose and it's not just a, oh, we did this and we sent it to you, we checked the box, and now we move on with our day? You know, one thing that's being done is it's actually built into agency strategic plans. So the law very intentionally tries to build on existing processes whenever possible. So agencies have been doing strategic plans for years. They're going to continue doing strategic plans. And so by aligning the learning agenda with the strategic planning process, you then build it into sort of the DNA of an agency into a process that they're already used to. And you have new people with new skills who are part of that process, but it then ties into something that's very fundamental in an agency. So it's not this thing on the side that's happening that you know you might check the box and then sort of forget about, but it really should be aligned with strategic goals and objectives, and it should be built into these processes that are part of the day-to-day -day business of an agency. 
And so should we think of it if once we have all of your guidance out from OMB and the agencies are doing their learning agendas that we should be seeing, this is going to oversimplify it, but one strategic goal here to, say, reduce homelessness among veterans in the country, and here's how we are going to evaluate it? That is probably an oversimplification. I think we're going to see a variety of things. So I think you're going to see within an agency a set of sort of short-term operational questions that are going to be, how do we do our day-to-day work inside the agency better? You're also going to see some longer-term questions that are, you know, how can we meet our mission over the long term, like reducing veterans' homelessness more effectively? I think we're also going to start to see cross-agency questions emerge. And this is something that we're starting to give some thought to is, is there sort of an overall research agenda for the federal government that maybe crosses agencies where agencies should be leveraging each other, like we talked about a minute ago, combining data sets, leveraging outside experts to help solve some of these really big questions that transcend a single agency. I think that is really exciting because I find that, except for the operational questions within the agency of how are they delivering X service, almost all of the big problems that we are tackling and trying to address in the district involve so many different agencies. And there's For whatever reason, the organization is not set up in a way that easily facilitates that cross-collaboration, and we have to build that space and provide that synergy. So to be able to see sort of what's emerging from the different agencies that has a similar thread to it that you could then really put some resources behind it and tackle is a really interesting, I think, byproduct and benefit of that learning agenda. And is there an example, Jenny, that you see here in D.C. of just that, things that stretch across what we in district government think of as the clusters of different policy areas like education, public safety and justice, health and human services? Yes, there are so many that I can think of. And it actually makes me think of our CAPSTAT program, which almost every topic we tackle brings in more agencies than you would typically think would work on a problem. So one example I think of is attendance, where I think people would normally think of just the school system as participating in the attendance challenge that we have here. But we bring in our health and human service agencies. We bring in actually our Office of Victim Service and Justice Grants. We have so many different agencies that are working on programs that are trying to address the barriers of why kids don't show up to school. And they're all tackling it in a slightly different way. So bringing them together and finding out the common threads that they're all seeing and how we can work together to solve those issues is really exciting. And to stay with you for a second, Jenny, we talked a little bit about building a culture of evidence. And we don't have specific laws here like the Evidence Act, although obviously our work is going to be informed and in some ways led by that in the district for different agencies. But how do you think the district government can go about building a culture of evidence and what have you seen so far? So it's one of the hardest things certainly to do. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of consistent effort. I think one of the most important things is having the people at the top of the leadership really value this kind of work and value data and evidence in their decision making. So certainly Mayor Bowser, City Administrator Young, they are always pressing agencies to explain why doing it this way versus that way would have a better impact or what data do you have to show us that this is working or not working. So certainly them valuing that sends the signal to everyone else in the organization that this is important. Secondly, I think it's about, as Diana mentioned, 
working on building it into the existing processes. So for example, in our shop, we have incorporated this into our annual budget process. So what that looks like at a practical level is that when an agency comes in and decides that they want to have additional money for a program or maybe they want to stop doing something, we are asking really detailed questions for them about what data or evidence do you have that this is or isn't working? What's the strength of that evidence? And then how should we think about measuring how your program will succeed? How should we think about what are the top reasons it should fail and what are the top things that you need for it to be successful? We use all of that information. We use our partners with the lab, as you know, to look at the strength of that evidence and give us some feedback on, is this anecdotal? Is this maybe like a meta-analysis of RCTs and super strong? And what should we think about? And then as we go into the discussions with the mayor and the city administrator, we're able to add another layer of information to say, Yes, we should invest in this program, not only because we think it helps meet one of the goals and objectives that you want to accomplish, but there's a lot of evidence out there that says it's going to work. And here's what the evidence said, and so we can be confident in this. Now, we still measure it to make sure that it actually did what we thought, but the more and more we can incorporate that, the more efficiently and effectively we can make sure that resources are allocated. It sounds like a lot of it, what you both touched on a little bit, is this idea of capacity building. And Dan, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what capacity already exists to do this work in the federal government and also how the federal government is going to be approaching kind of building that capacity. Because I imagine the chief data officer and the chief evaluation officer aren't intended to do all of this work on their own. Yeah, that's right. Existing capacity does vary quite widely. I think if we look across the federal government, there are certainly agencies that are doing some or all of this work quite well. And then there are agencies that for whom this is very new. And it does vary quite a bit. So we see sort of pockets of excellence in many places. And we have agencies that we would hold up as strong leaders in all areas here. But I think almost anyone probably could stand to build some capacity. Interestingly enough, the law does include a requirement for a capacity assessment. It asks agencies to regularly assess the capacity of an agency for research, evaluation, and analytic activities. I think this is going to serve as a really useful baseline for us to have a deep dive look into existing capacity and then try to identify where the gaps are and what we need to do to continue to build it. And I think it's it's resources in a variety of ways. It's not just money, but it's people and it's skills. And it's trying to identify sort of what we have and then where can we draw on. One of the most important lessons, I think, from this law is probably the need to collaborate. That data is not something that just sits in one office, but data transcends the organization. And that, you know, folks from many different offices that do a variety of different tasks are going to have to work together to really leverage data as a strategic asset. And that makes a lot of sense. And maybe people who haven't worked in the federal government or in government at all, like, It's hard to think of, even within one agency, that the data that you need to answer these really important questions or this work could, you know, someone could have it over here, but someone sitting literally in the same cubicle or floor of the building can't use that. Can you say a little bit more about what the existing barriers are to that sort of collaboration, even within an agency and across agencies? 
I think there are a number of barriers. I think folks often point to legal barriers, but that's not necessarily the problem here. In a lot of cases, it's not a legal barrier, but it's more of a cultural barrier. So that's just not the way we do business. The default tends to be no to sharing, where in many cases the default should be yes. And I think this law does change the default to yes, of course, with appropriate protections, particularly when it involves data on individuals. So obviously those protections have to be in place, but it's a mindset shift. So instead of saying, we're not going to share unless we have a really good reason, it sort of shifts the mentality to, we're going to share unless there's a good reason why we shouldn't. And that's a really important first step. And, you know, I think one of the phrases that comes to mind, though, in this sort of work that you all are focusing really heavily on is that, you know, laws aren't self-implementing or guidance isn't self-implementing. So what do you think the things that federal agencies are going to need to do to change that culture in one way beyond just what's on the books about sharing by default? How do you get people to go against, say, you know, for some people, decades of time saying too much risk to share this data. This could be a lawsuit. This could be a problem. We've all seen many breaches that have happened all throughout the public and private sector. What's an agency going to need to look at closely to help support that culture? I think it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of people over a number of years to do this right. You know, one thing for sure, I think, is demonstrating success. And if there are some quick wins, that's going to do a lot to help people understand why this is important. I think there's a lot of things we can do pretty quickly with data to demonstrate why, in fact, it's an asset and why using data and building evidence can actually further agency missions in a really important way. So having some people focus on that. I think is going to be critical. I think having also just a dedicated team of people who are thinking about implementing this law and implementing it in a really coherent and collaborative way. It can't be someone's side job. It can't be one person over on the side who's just thinking about this in the two hours they have on Friday afternoon. (laughs) It's really got to be a dedicated team of people who are taking this on. One thing the recently issued OMB guidance does is it does require agencies to set up data governance bodies. And so this is a mechanism to bring key leaders together from across the agency to think about data governance, to think about data management across the data lifecycle and what that really means in practice. And Jenny, you and I would both agree that while we've made a lot of progress in D.C. about being able to share and use data effectively, what do you think are the things that are working well for D.C. in terms of these kind of similar challenges? And what are the areas where you think we can grow a little bit more? Yeah, so I think we've come a long way in the last five years in sort of our like data use and governance. So establishing the data policy was really critical because it laid out a lot of the key framework for some of the positions, right, required not only at the very leadership level, but within agencies of who's going to be your sort of data manager, your data wrangler. It also created a data inventory in the district that's actually an open data set itself. So we have a listing of every single data set that the district government has so that people can expand their knowledge and know what we have out there. And then it also classifies that data so that we know what should be open and put on our open data portal and maybe what is extremely restricted and can only be accessed under certain conditions. So I think those things are going well for us. I think some of the areas that we still have challenges with is 
all around the sharing of the data. And that's for a number of reasons. Some of it is cultural. Some of it is that mentality of, no, it's my data. I don't want you to have it. Some of it is, I think, fear that there'll be like a mistake in the data or the data will show something negative and people are afraid of being penalized for that. And then third, I think, is a more technical piece of we have a lot of different systems that data is kept in, and people are trained in use of different systems. So how do you take it and extract it from one area and put it into another data system so that it can be used and analyzed? So all of those things, you know, we're still working through, particularly on how we can better share maybe some of that data that has a little bit more restriction to it, but isn't impossible to share once you set up the right frameworks. And I'll just add to on the open data piece, what you mentioned in terms of data inventories and a data catalog, that's also part of this law too. So we haven't talked a lot about it, but the Evidence Act also really strengthens the open data laws for the federal government. So agencies will be doing even more work on their data inventories. The federal data catalog is going to become, you know, far more robust. So we've been talking about how to treat data as an asset kind of within district government, within federal agencies, across federal agencies. What are the opportunities that might develop for state and local governments and federal governments to collaborate on sharing data and building evidence through the Evidence Act? The Evidence Act presents a whole lot of opportunities for collaboration across levels of government. So the first one I'd point to is this learning agenda process. So the law actually requires that as part of learning agenda development, agencies engage a variety of stakeholders, and state and local governments are named as one of those stakeholders that have to be consulted. So that's fundamental from the very beginning, helping to set the questions that an agency is going to address. I think the law is also going to open up data access in many hopefully useful ways, both the open data and the privacy-protected data that, if used by the appropriate people, could also present opportunities for partnerships across levels of government. So those are certainly two, I think, great opportunities for collaboration along the way. So in terms of uh, states and localities benefiting from that, I want to ask a selfish question here. Um, One of the data sharing challenges that we have in D.C., and I imagine other states are similar, but we live in a very small geographic area. And what that means is that we have people who live in D.C. and work in Maryland or Virginia or even West Virginia or Delaware. Uh, And conversely, we have people who live in those places and work in D.C. And when we're trying to answer a question about whether a program or service helps people uh, maintain or increase their economic well-being, we struggle to answer questions like, are they employed and how much are they earning? And in order to get those data, we would have to have agreements with all of those states. And so the selfish part of the question is, should I as a researcher hope that the Evidence Act is going to help out with these data sharing challenges? Yes. I make no promises, but I think having aspirations like that is a very good thing. And I think having specific examples like that, particularly coming from local stakeholders, will be really important. That's great. Well, we look forward to contributing to that as well. So this is obviously very new as of January and very exciting, but wanted to ask if we had you back on the podcast at DC in 2024 to talk about the effect of the Evidence Act, what would you hope to see? What would you hope to be the result of your work in five years' time? 
couple of things. So one, I think within federal agencies, I would like to see them become more data-driven and evidence-based. So that's all the way from being thoughtful about planning the activities they're going to undertake to generate that evidence, to undertaking the studies to produce the evidence, whether that's a program evaluation or a different kind of analytic activity, to then using that information to inform decision-making, both at an operational level and the day-to-day work, and then long-term addressing those strategic goals that you know transcend many, many years. I would hope that data are more freely available to the public, that we have better open data so that the public and external stakeholders can utilize federal data effectively. I would hope that we have many more collaborations across agencies, across levels of government, and with external partners using government data to answer these really tricky questions that can help all of us in the end. So that's obviously an ambitious vision and it's a deciding law, but what do you think is going to be the key to the success or failure of the Evidence Act in terms of being implemented successfully of getting to that kind of five-year vision that you just laid out for us? It's going to be critical that people really buy into this and understand its importance and see it as a tool to help them do their jobs better. The worst case scenario is that this becomes just a compliance exercise and yet another thing that folks just check the box and say, I've done the minimum, I've met the requirements of the law, now I'm going to move on to my other work. If this is embedded in an agency's culture, if folks really embrace it and see that it's leading to improvements, that's a success. And Jenny, having both been the chief performance officer of the district at one time and also in your current position, have you seen examples of when these sorts of things can be embedded really well into our processes and don't just become a box checking activity, which sometimes things like evidence generation, evaluation, performance management, those sorts of things have happened in the past? Mm -hmm. So I think one of the best ways to avoid things becoming sort of a compliance check the box exercise is making sure that information is used in decision making. And so it matters that the tools, the templates, the things that we are asking agencies to fill out, the information that's generated from that, we actively use it in how we make decisions on resource allocation or decisions on operational requirements. It matters that the agency head also feels that way and uses that information. And so to pick up on what Diana was saying, this idea of in the future that people are thinking critically about is what I'm doing working and how will I best know? And then having the tools to do that, really valuing that will make sure that this work continues to happen. I want to take us what may seem like a little bit far afield for a second, but the thing that struck me in both of your comments is that when we're talking about implementation, you also, without explicitly saying it, kind of talked about who you think the users of our policies and programs are. So the folks in agencies that are really going to be key to implementing this. You know, Jenny, you don't set the budget for every agency. You get proposals for the budget. And Diana, you're not implementing the Evidence Act, you're creating guidance on the Evidence Act. So how do you try to think when you're laying out something new like this? How do you put yourself in the shoes of an agency that you're trying to design something for? 
Well, very concretely, we do talk to people and yeah. we do ask them. <laughs> so we have key partners in many agencies that have helped inform our work and will continue to inform our work. So we ask our agency partners, what will be useful to you? What could we do that would help you do your job? What could we do that actually might make your job harder? And let's not do that. <laughs> So I think talking to people is part of our work and always has been and always will be because we can't even begin to imagine what it's like for someone in these agencies to actually do the work day to day. There's a variety of federal agencies, a variety of contexts, a variety of different users. I think getting those kinds of diverse perspectives is incredibly important. I would agree with that. And, you know, I think you have to also be making sure that you are communicating in such a way that people feel comfortable giving you feedback, right? So they understand that you are trying something new and you are doing it with your best intention. But if something's not working, pick up the phone and call me and directors do it all the time <laughs> and tell me what's not working and I will do my best to address it or, you know, talk through how we can fix it. So Every year in the budget process, for example, we do what's called a hot wash and we sit down with all our stakeholders and we just listen for like an hour and a half, all the good, all the bad, all the ugly, and then we make adjustments going forward. One of the things I think about is how much we can ask agencies to take on in a given year and what we can expect to achieve and being realistic about that. Mm. So we have to understand that agencies have their own processes and their own cycles and their own ways of doing things. And when you institute a new procedure or a new policy, it's probably going to take a couple years for it to really take hold. They have to train staff. They may have to hire new staff. You may have to literally wait for an entire budget cycle to come around again. And so you need to set your expectations in a way that's realistic, but also means that you won't do it in such a way as to totally turn people off from the very beginning, right? Mm -hmm. If you push too hard and push too fast, people are just going to throw their hands up and say, this is impossible. This work is difficult and you don't stand it up overnight. So you have to think about how would you incorporate this work in a reasonable way. How's OMB thinking about that? The kind of bring agencies and other partners along a little bit, like in the, I don't want to say slowly, but in the optimal way to get this work really embedded. We're definitely thinking about this as creating a framework with a lot of flexibility for agencies to implement the law in a way that makes sense for them. So that's really, I think, the only way it's going to be meaningful and that folks are going to take on the hard work that's necessary. What we've done through our guidance and what the law itself does is create a framework with a number of requirements, but it does allow agencies to really do the work in a way that fits their particular context based on their existing capacity maybe some additional capacity they can find, but addresses the questions that are important to them in a way that's important to them in you know, a manner that's going to work with their particular process. And I think that's really important because at the end of the day, if the information is not useful to them, it's never going to work, right? And so we don't set up these frameworks just to set up frameworks. We set them up because we think they will lead to information that will be incredibly useful for the agency, for the district as a whole, or for the federal government. And so making sure that there's flexibility and making sure that that information, that evidence can actually be incorporated and used at the end of the day is the most critical thing. 
Diana, for agencies who are working with data, who are doing these program evaluations and learning agendas, how does the Evidence Act allow the regular person, the regular taxpayer, to understand what's going on and understand what the federal government is doing? So one of the exciting pieces of the act is that learning agendas are going to be public documents that are posted as part of agency strategic plans. So that's going to allow members of the public to see what are those priority questions that an agency is focused on. And then perhaps there are members of the public or academic partners or others who might help answer some of those questions. But at a more basic level, it does give insight into the questions that an agency is asking. I think on the data front as well, there's a lot on data transparency in the Evidence Act. So open data, of course, is a big part of this, making more data open and available for the public as users. Data catalog, helping the public and others to understand what data sets are even available that they might utilize. So I think transparency is a really important principle that comes up in a number of places. So that's very cool to be able to share with our listeners kind of how evidence and evaluation is and the use of data is going into the budget process. How will residents be able to see these sorts of results and how will they know what sort of evidence is being generated and used in district government? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm especially proud of is the lab at DC and sort of the work that they're doing to lead, I think, the way on transparency in the evaluation space. So every project that the lab works on, we do what is called a pre-analysis plan. And that pre-analysis plan covers a couple things. It covers the questions we're asking, what we're working on, and the methods that we're going to be using. Those are all published to the open science framework. And then we post the results there as well. And so what that means for folks and why that's important is that, one, it's important for learning, right? So we can share with peers and partners what we're working on and how we're tackling it. But it's also really important to make sure that we don't go into something and suddenly become biased because of what we're finding. So you may start out with a question, but then once you get into the data, you start to realize your hypothesis might be wrong. But with the pre-analysis plan, it helps us guard against that and make sure that we are being as objective as we can as we go through these. So folks can go to the Open Science Framework, or you can also go to the Lab at DC's website. Yep, the lab.dc.gov. Where we have a new page that lists all of the projects that we either have worked on or currently working on, or some that we're just beginning to work on. And in really user-friendly, plain language, helps you understand what we did, what we found, what some interesting surprising things were and what we're doing next with the results. And so in addition to that kind of work, you can also see all of our key performance data on our open data site in district government. We actually have a really robust open data portal for people where they can find all sorts of interesting facts and things about the district. And then, of course, we're working, I think, to incorporate more of this kind of sharing of the evidence and evaluation from our agencies, how we can you know, better communicate that to the public. Well, Diana and Jenny, thanks for being on the podcast at D.C. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.